0: I'd like for the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Very, very famous passage. And uh, I must also say that it's one that can be difficult to follow. Uh, the, The most striking prophecy, perhaps, in the Old Testament... Occurs in the middle of a pitched battle uh, or a pitched war against uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, the Davidic kingdom that has uh, survived. And as a consequence of that, uh, it can get lost in the history of the passage. But I think it's important that we see enough of the history. I'm not going to go into all the details this morning, but it's important enough that we can see uh, enough of the history to understand the circumstances around which Isaiah uh, saw and revealed this prophecy uh, to Ahaz, who was the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Remember, Uzziah was a good king. And uh, we saw last week that as uh, Isaiah was meditating on the Lord in the Lord's presence, Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, he was somewhat uh, concerned for the future of his nation. And God gave him a great vision of himself as the King of Kings and the glorious Lord sitting upon the throne. Most Bible scholars and students believe that what Isaiah saw was actually the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That was a, It was a Christophany, uh, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Of course, it was in a vision form. But Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he was sitting upon the throne of the heavens. And so Isaiah has seen the glory of the Lord, much as John did uh, on the Isle of Patmos when he uh, opens his prophecy of revelation and he has this vision of jesus and he sees the familiar one but not looking quite the same he is clearly king of kings and lord of lords and so isaiah has this in his background and he is confident of god's deliverance and care for judah the Davidic Kingdom. Remember, let me just interject here. That the Southern Kingdom, uh, Judah and Benjamin were, is the kingdom that David's lineage followed. And God had promised David that his offspring would occupy that throne forever and that one day, one of his offspring would be that great king who would eternally occupy the Davidic throne. The northern kingdom went from dynasty to dynasty. They kept changing families, but not so in the southern kingdom. And so uh, their line is always the line of David. But all the kings were not good. Uzziah was a good king. But Ahaz was not a good king. He was uh, self-righteous. He had uh, confidence uh, in himself. He had confidence in the nations around him. Uh, He was counting on uh, human help to solve problems. Uh, He was counting on alliances and treaties and those kinds of things that would ultimately bring him help and hope. And he was not looking to the Lord at all. And he had led Judah back into sin and rebellion. But now he's quaking in his boots, so to speak. Literally, uh, the scripture says he's trembling like trees that tremble in the wind. Um, Because uh, two nations have come against him from the north. One is uh, actually the Arameans, is actually modern-day Syria. And the Syrians have joined forces with the northern kingdom of Israel, and they have come down from the north and uh, pitched a siege against the kingdom of Judah. And it's their intention to ultimately destroy Judah, to take over, to put uh, someone else on the throne... And to conquer that land. And Ahaz is very, very worried. And so he's starting to look for help. Uh, He's appealing of all places to the Assyrians. Which would be kind of uh, almost a a classic uh, pincher kind of move in in warfare. Because the Assyrians were further north and uh, east of Israel and Samaria. So if they joined ranks with him and came in from that area, they would be kind of caught in a wedge. And if he could induce Egypt to come from the south and come up and give assistance, then uh, he kind of felt like we can we can lick this thing. but right now he's scared. And that's how the chapter opens. It says, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have encamped in Ephraim, His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Now, what it is that they heard was that the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. In other words, they've settled down. They're not planning to leave. And Ephraim was um, Samaria. You remember the Samaritans from the New Testament uh, over to the west of Jordan and, and north a little bit of Jerusalem. And the Samaritans were not (laughs) dearly beloved by any means. And uh, the fact that Ephraim has moved in and settled in this region indicates that they are already beginning to possess and control the northern lands. And they can fortify themselves from that position and be prepared to uh, move on Judah when the time comes. So the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, shear jashub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted. Friends, when our hope and our trust is in God, we can have no fear and be calm. You know, we may be tempted. In fact, um, you may find yourself from time to time confronted with issues that make you quake (laughs) and shake and bring anxiety. And the solution for that is to fix your eyes on the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. The one who rules over all. The Lord can bring that calmness. That peace. That serenity. That enables you to stand uh, Firm in in the day of trouble, and to have the peace and the joy of the Lord. And so, uh, as uh, Ahaz, as Isaiah goes to meet Ahaz, he says, "Take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands." In other words, he says, "You're worried about." Uh, the Syrians and, and the, uh, northern Israel, Israeli kingdom. He says, they're smoldering firebrands. In other words, their fire's gone out. They're dying embers. There's only a tendril of smoke left. You're worried about nothing. These people cannot overcome you. And he says, because of Aram and and with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as, as king in the midst of it. In other words they're going to depose Ahaz and put Tabeel on the throne. Thus says the Lord God it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass why is that it's because God has promised that the Davidic kingdom will last that he will not allow it to be overthrown and that no one will sit on the throne of Judah but a but a son of David Tabeel does not fit the picture <laughs> and even though they ultimately did go into captivity There was not a king on the throne of Judah. And even as the history of Israel unfolds, there there was never a true monarch on that throne again who was in sovereign control since the time that Judah went into captivity to Babylon years later. In fact, the next king to sit on the throne of Israel will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the coming one. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, don't worry about this. Don't worry about the head of Aram, Damascus, and Damascus resident for within 65 years. Ephraim will be shattered so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Now this is a challenge to Ahaz personally. Put your faith in God. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Because if you don't, You're not going to last. You're going to meet your end. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, (coughs) I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. What's Ahaz doing? It is a good thing not to test the Lord. Sometimes the nation of Israel tested God when He had not invited them to because of their doubt. And as a consequence of that, they they, they reaped trouble. But when God tells you to do something... The act of faith is obedience. And so through Isaiah, God says to Ahaz, Ask the Lord for a sign. If, if there's any question in your mind, if there's any doubt, God is going to prove himself. So ask him for a sign. It can be as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol the grave. It can, Anywhere in the universe, ask God for a sign. At that point in time, Ahaz could have asked for anything. Make the sun stand still again. Blot out the moon. Whatever, he could have asked for anything. Instead, in his rebellion, he says, No, thank you very much. I am putting my confidence in Assyria and uh, ultimately in Egypt, and I am not going to test the Lord. In other words, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do as I please. I'm going to do it my way. And Isaiah says, Listen now, house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? Whose patience is he really trying right now? Isaiah's. (laughs) Isaiah has come to give him a message. And Ahaz, typically of Ahaz, is refusing to hear the prophet of God. And Isaiah, in essence, is saying, I'm wearing out with you. I'm getting tired of giving you messages that you're not paying any attention to. But now, you're trying the patience of God. It's one thing to try my patience. But you're trying God's patience. And so he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And at this point, he pauses, and he says, Behold. Now, I want you to think about that word for a moment, behold. First of all, it is a unique word. Um, You wouldn't have any uh, easy way of knowing this without doing a lot of background study, but the word behold is often used to announce a very unique and special event. In fact, even among uh, pagans who, who had a word quite similar, it was used to announce the, the birth or creation of a, of a god, uh, one of their pagan deities. It's a word that causes what is to be seen to stand out above all other things. And Isaiah says, Behold. The second thing that's unique about it is, it assumes that one is seeing something. Behold. You know, you say, Behold. You point to something that we can see. Which in this case implies that Isaiah is actually seeing this vision that he is literally watching this event unfold that he is about to announce. Some years ago when I took some time uh, off and went to East Tennessee for a sabbatical break, (coughs) I was in Barnes & Noble and I met uh, a man there who was a professor at uh, East Tennessee State University, but I didn't know that when I first met him, what I recognized was that one younger person after another would come by his table and they would talk about the Lord. And so uh, when he was free, I slipped over to his table, And I said, I perceive that uh, you're a believer, a follower of Christ. And he acknowledged that was true. And we struck up a conversation and we got to talking. And in the course of that, I realized that he he was uh, a man of unusual faith. And he began to prophesy over me. But the interesting thing was, is that he was looking past me. Do you know what I mean by that? It wasn't looking in my face. He was looking off to the side. I, you know, as I'm looking at Sharon, I'm not really looking at Sharon. She's in my periphery. But I'm, I'm looking off to the side, and he was looking into the distance. It's like he had a long gaze. And he was telling me things that God wanted to do. And when we, when he finished saying the things that he had to say, we started talking together about it a bit. And I said, May I ask you a question about your prophecy? And he said, Well, sure. I said, Were you seeing that as you talked to me? And he said, Yes. I was watching the picture unfold. Sometimes prophecy is like that. God reveals in a vision what is coming and the prophet sees it. And as Isaiah is talking to Ahaz in this moment of Ahaz's tremendous rebellion and Isaiah's weariness. He's looking beyond him and seeing a vision. And he says, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey, which... That sounds like a strange diet, right? How many of you want cottage cheese and honey? Not all the time. Maybe not ever. I don't know. But um, but it was uh, a description of a royal diet. In other words, the richest, the finest of the land. It was what kings ate, so to speak. They literally didn't eat. Kurds and I, I hope you're getting the picture but they ate the finest and the richest and so it was an indication that this one was going to be a king and before he uh, even knows enough to refuse uh, or before I'm sorry I got to put on my glasses because I can't see at the time he knows enough to eat uh, to refuse evil and choose good for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, th- there's an awful lot in the remainder of this chapter and in the next chapter that is that is very complex in, in its symbolic meaning and in its historical meaning. And I don't want to spend the remainder of my time on that this morning. I want to to spend my time on this prophecy and what it means. Isaiah says, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Liberal versus conservative scholars have debated for centuries, at least a couple of centuries, whether that... Hebrew word meant virgin or whether it just simply meant a young woman. And was this prophecy simply rooted in the immediate history or was it rooted in some future history? Because not long after this, Isaiah's wife conceives and she has a child and so they, uh, liberal scholarship have pointed to that and said that that's the end of the prophecy. But here's the thing. Excuse me, I'm still fighting this sinus sore throat business. The thing is, is that there's no other word in the Hebrew language that can satisfy the meaning of virgin other than this word that is used in Isaiah 7.14. And because it referred to a young unmarried woman, in Israel's culture, may I just say, she better be a virgin. Um... The idea was that this was the only descriptive term of a young woman of marriageable age who was not married and had never had sexual relationship with a man. That was the only way to describe her. And so Isaiah says, A virgin will conceive. How does that happen? And bear a son. He sees, as it were, almost into the womb of this virgin. Better than ultrasound. And he says, she's going to have a son. And she will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. There's no mistaking the meaning of the term. You know, it's not a great man. It's not an outstanding person. It is God who is going to be with us. And He is the sign of salvation and deliverance. I'd like you to turn over to Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew quotes this passage. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, now uh, verse 18, Matthew 1, 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When, in, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is out of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus." Now, just again as an aside, I want you to get a little bit of insight into the parents that God chose to raise Jesus from infancy. Joseph had many options available to him when he found out that Mary was pregnant. One option was he could have hauled her into the town square and had her stoned to death. Another option was he could have made a public disgrace of her and she would have remained a single woman all the rest of her life because no man would have anything to do with her. His decision was to quietly and discreetly break the betrothal and just simply move her out of the picture. Given the culture, that was the kindest way he could have treated her. And it says a lot about Joseph. It says something about his tenderness, about his love for Mary, about his sensitivity And it suggests to us that this was not the ordinary couple, but an extraordinary couple. One who would be uh, examples of character and godliness and blessing. And so, as he considered this option... An angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, notice the lineage, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is out of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. There are all kinds of attempts to explain the incarnation, the the God-man, Jesus Christ. And some of them get rather weird, to be honest with you. Uh, Some see this mystical, spiritual union as that Mary... Uh, has conceived by the Holy Spirit. Somehow or another, the Holy Spirit has contributed the supernatural God part of the man, and Mary has contributed the human part in order to make the God man. Nothing could be further from the truth or, frankly, more strange. Strange. Um what we're being told here is the Holy Spirit placed within the womb of Mary, the incarnate Son of God. God provided the body and the spirit. Mary provided the womb. And the distinction here is that Jesus Christ, if you look with me uh, over into 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and verse uh, 42, I believe it is. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll wait till the end. Rustling of pages indicates you have arrived. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. This is speaking of the death of believers. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Remember how that happened? God shaped Adam from the dust of the ground, that earthly part of his being, and he breathed into his nostrils <coughs> God's own breath of life the the rock of life. And as he breathed into him, Adam became a living person, a living soul. he had a a mind, he had will, he had emotions, he had a body, he had a spirit he, he was a a whole being that contained the very breath of God. And so the first man, Adam, became a living soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So there's a first Adam and there's a last Adam. And the last Adam is made very much like the first Adam. From the dust of the ground... A body is crafted, material substance, filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, this body is prepared for the eternal Son of God. And out of the Holy Spirit, this body is placed in the womb of Mary. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. But the second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. In other words, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. A translation takes place in our person. Our dead spirit comes to life. Our soul, mind, will, and emotions are invaded, if I can use that word. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. So that He begins to make us over into the image of Christ. And in the resurrection, our body is raised. And we take on that everlasting quality of sons and daughters of God. That's his intention. And so, when the angel came to Joseph and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is in her is out of the Holy Spirit. And this was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Here we have a testimony of Scripture within Scripture, and That's, by the way, the best way to interpret the Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So in Hebrew, in Isaiah 7, 14, we may be lacking a word that has exquisite precision, but it cannot mean anything other than what it does. But the Holy Spirit leaves nothing to chance, bringing us to Matthew chapter 1, The word in Greek by divine inspiration leaves no doubt that Isaiah was speaking of a virgin. And there is no doubt that this prophecy points toward Mary, the virgin mother who will be the blessing of the Son of God in human flesh who will come as a savior for his people. Every year, it seems, someone says to me, I didn't know Jesus existed before the birth in the manger. Well, He existed from all eternity. He is the Word of God made into human flesh. He is the eternal Son of God, His name, Emmanuel, means God has come to be with us. And so, the eternal God, the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, has taken on a body prepared for him. But unlike Adam, who was made an adult man, Jesus comes as a baby. And he is born in a birthing pen for sheep and laid in a feeding trough in the humblest of circumstances. And he walks among us as fully man even though he is also fully God. He experiences our trials. He knows grief. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows loneliness. He knows loss. He knows rejection, even by his own family. Joseph, who has passed from the scene and has Brothers and sisters at one point come with Mary and they want to take him home. He's a lunatic, gone mad. They want to bring him back uh, and take care of him, so to speak. Stop this nonsense. He knows rejection. As he broke the bread and fed the crowds and Then gave them that pointed message recorded in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they all went away. And Jesus turns to his disciples, the only ones left standing with him. And he says, Are you going also? Will you leave me too? I think that was not only a question to penetrate their hearts, but I think it was an honest question from Jesus the man. Are you planning to desert? He knew all of those things. He knew the joy and the blessing of watching children play, and he welcomed them and they found him to be most affectionate and fun to be around. They wanted to be near him. He reached out to the down and out, the lowliest of people. He had his greatest difficulty with the religious proud leaders of the Jewish religion. But his greatest relationship with the common and ordinary person to the woman called in adultery who was brought to the town center to be stoned he pointed out to the men in the crowd whichever one of you has committed no sin you cast the first stone Jesus was the only one that could fill that criteria And his answer was, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He healed the sick. He bound up the brokenhearted. He restored sight to the blind. He gave the capacity to walk to the lame. He raised the dead and gave a son back to his mother. This amazing God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the incarnation, as he comes into this world as the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, he lives his life here as a man, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that he might model for us, what the Spirit-filled life is all about. He doesn't act on his own. He doesn't take his own initiative. He could have. He was God the Son. But he said, I only speak what I hear my Father speak, and I only do what I see Him do. I am completely obedient to my Father in every respect, and what I do is accomplished by the power of the Spirit. You and I have that same privilege because He came. We can hear and obey the Father and act in the power of the Spirit. He said to His disciples, You will do the things that I have done and you'll do even greater things because I'm going to my Father. But I will not leave you alone or comfortless. I'm going to send my Spirit, the same one that has been working in me and through me. He will be in you and working through you, you can enjoy the same blessing of walking with God as I have enjoyed. Ahaz has no faith, he's in a dilemma, and in rebellion, he refuses to believe, he refuses the sign. And so God gives him one. The salvation of Israel lies in the hope of one who will come, born of a virgin, to live among us and to give us salvation, deliverance, and life eternal. And there can be no question From the scripture, rightly understood that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called God among us. Father, thank you that you have not left us with mystery or lack of understanding concerning who Jesus is. But you have made very clear to us that he has been sent from heaven, the last Adam, the second man, the beginning of a new creation, the head of a new race, and that every one of us who puts our hope in him can find life everlasting. For to know him is to have life eternal. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.